Mic Check 717. This is Eric T. Jones, a.k.a. Brother Jones, and I just need five minutes of your time. Today, I'm going to discuss reparations, specifically why we haven't gotten them. There are a lot of reasons why, but I'm going to focus on the fact that those who oppose reparations refuse to see or learn about why we are owed our dues. There's a lot here, so let's get into it. On January 12, 1865, several months before the Civil War ended, General William T. Sherman and Secretary of War Edwin M. Staten met with black leaders regarding their concerns. They asked the appointed leader of the group, Reverend Garrison Frazier, a series of queries such as, state in what manner you think you can take care of yourselves, and how can you best assist the government in maintaining your freedom? Frazier replied, land. Several days later on January 16, 1865, Sherman issued Special Field Order Number 15. This order confiscated land from South Carolina to Florida, totaling 400,000 acres of land that would be distributed in 40-acre allotments per family. This is where the phrase 40 acres in a mule came from. Sadly, this order was rescinded by President Andrew Johnson because even though they worked the land for free for over 200 years, he thought it was unfair. You gotta be kidding me. The struggle for reparations harks back to the late 19th century. Between the 19th and 20th centuries, there are two individuals I want to bring to your attention concerning this struggle. The first person is Kylie D. Guy House, a formerly enslaved person who helped start the National Ex-Slave Mutual Relief Bounty and Pension Association. This organization lobbied Congress to pass legislation for a pension plan that would support formerly enslaved persons. Later in the 20th century, oddly, Queen Mother Moore, the progenitor of the modern reparations movement, helped institute the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. This coalition aided John Conyers in designing H.R. 40, the Commission to Study and Develop Reparation Proposals for African Americans Act, the bill I mentioned in Episode 1, which has been introduced in Congress since 1989 without a full vote in the House or Senate. I provide this background information to illustrate the modern debate concerning reparations did not happen in a vacuum. Rather, it was shaped by the grassroots and most importantly, black women. Fast forward to April 14 of this year. The House Judiciary Committee voted to advance H.R. 40 for a full House vote. The vote was 25 yay, 17 nay, signaling persistent opposition toward reparations. Republicans on the committee believe H.R. 40 is not fair to Americans that one, or descendants of slave masters, or two, have family members that fought to abolish slavery. Nice try. Americans don't need a history of enslavers to benefit from the racial hierarchy built by slavery, and the Civil War did not really concern abolition. Good old Mitch McConnell claims there's no need for H.R. 40. He argues the Civil War, landmark civil rights legislation, and the election of the first black president atoned for slavery. Y'all funny. He echoes the progressives who believe H.R. 40 is divisive. They insist slavery ended in the 19th century with the 13th Amendment. Well, according to Douglas Blackman, slavery did not end until 1945 due to convict leasing. Others will argue it's still alive via the criminal justice system. I'm not going to philosophize over slavery's end date, but I will say this. The history clearly illustrates continual resistance against racial advancement since emancipation. That is why progressives don't want to create this commission, because they know that history further exposes the American lie. Honestly, there's really no need for this commission because we already have a proposal on the table. William Darity Jr. and A. Kirsten Mullen published a book last year titled From Here to Equality, 
Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, that lays out a plan for reparations. Like Delaware State Senator Darius Brown said, it shouldn't be a study of reparations, it should be funding reparations. The literature is rich with evidence that justifies reparations, so we know what it is. Going back to Darity and Mullen, they note that reparations atone not only for slavery, but legal segregation via Jim Crow and ongoing discrimination exacerbated by structural racism. Furthermore, it consists of three steps. Number one, acknowledgement. Number two, redress. And number three, closure. They explain it's imperative for the United States to acknowledge slavery and its contemporary implications, as well as provide redress to eliminate the racial wealth gap and closure in a way that allows us to move forward. In the event reparations are granted and racial inequality is eradicated, they write, African Americans will make no further claims for race-specific policies on their behalf from the American government, on the assumption that no new race-specific injustices are inflicted upon them. In other words, we're willing to call it even if racism is eliminated the moment we get our funds. Darity and Mullen's analysis raise a question and comment for me. Number one, if blacks are granted reparations but whites maintain institutional power, are we still vulnerable to white rage? For those not familiar with white rage, look up a story in Carol Anderson who coined the term. Number two, this goes along with my first point, but I'm not assuming shit. Like I said on the previous episode, keep your head on a swivel. Can you imagine the conservative backlash following reparations? I can already see them exploding reparations whenever people make accusations of racism from poor whites to rich whites. You inherited whiteness and you know it, which is why some of you are trying so hard to keep it. Look at yourselves. Just stop it. We can't even get through Darity and Mullen's first step. Acknowledgement. So why did our check bounce? Because regressives are ahistorical, racist, or both. Well, my five minutes are up. Keep your head on swivel until next time.